Well, Father, we thank you for all of your words, and we thank you for this wonderful songbook that you have written for us. And pray that we would understand it, Father, that we would understand the life experiences of these men who have written it, that we would see your hand in deliverance, and we would rejoice in your goodness. Bless our time together, we ask, please, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's just kind of dive right in by looking at the psalm. It is a psalm of David that is part of the inspired transcript, a psalm and song at the dedication of the house of David. There is a lot of academic discussion about what is meant there by the house of David. It is not the temple. It is not the temple. David is not talking about the construction of the temple. He wanted to build a temple. He supplied the materials and much of the money to build the temple, but there is no temple under David. It specifically refers to his house. And if we would kind of read ahead, right? we are, we are told a lot more about Solomon's house his physical building of his house than we are about David's house. But I think that what David is referring to is just that, is the building of his house. It is mentioned in 2 Samuel 5-7. through And the word house has, or can have, it doesn't have to have, but it can, it, it sometimes have, and might in this instance, the dual meaning. 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 11, Hiram king of Tyre sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons and they built David an house. And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and they had exalted his kingdom for his people Israel's sake. That's 2 Samuel 5, 11 and 12. And I think that's the reference here. That would just, right, in all of the debate and discussion about what the house is, that would be my best assessment because the Bible tells us what happens when when David has this house this is the king's house this is the white house that when that house is built David understands in the building and construction of that house that this is the establishment of his kingdom that his years of running and wandering and hiding and fighting are come to an end And I think that that is the context here. That is the way that I would understand it. But on the other hand, if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 7, which we will not do this evening, there is that dual use as David contemplates building God a physical house, the temple. God interrupts him and points out that he will build David a house. Well, David already has a house, physical. And the dual use there is the idea of a household or what we would call a dynasty. A succession of kings who come from his lineage. So, I think, however, to go back to this psalm, a psalm unsung at the dedication of the house of David. We are not told about that dedication in the Samuel account. I mean, in in the 2 Samuel 5 account. But there was some kind of an official celebratory dedication of the house 
And David understood this to mean the security of his kingdom. And this causes David to reflect upon God's past mercies. And I think that they are revealed several ways in the course of this psalm. They're one of the, I don't want to say the challenges, but one of the things that we note as we read through the psalm carefully is that it, it doesn't seem to follow a, a clear line of thought. It, it kind of bounces from idea to different idea in a couple of places, and we will see that. And be, well, Let's begin then by looking at the structure of the psalm. Verses 1 through 3 are David's testimony. This is David's testimony. As, as they're having the dedication to his house, David writes a song about it. David writes a song for the dedication of his house. This is not uncommon. Right? We still do these kinds of things. We have songs commissioned. People write songs and poems and make speeches at these kinds of occasions. And David was Israel's greatest songwriter at that time. And so he writes a song. I will extol thee, O Lord. I will sing your praises, for thou hast lifted me up and hast not made my foes to rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried unto thee, and thou hast healed me. O Lord, thou hast brought up my soul from the grave, thou hast kept me alive, that I should not go down to the pit. So David's testimony is in verse number one that God had prevented disaster. And you can just read, folks, about David's experiences at the hand of Saul and at the hand of Saul's allies and the way that he was running for his life to the point of having to pretend that he was insane to make a safe getaway. And he had many close calls. There's, there's one incident, there's actually a psalm written about it. There's one incident where David and King Saul are kind of circling each other around the mountain. They are that close to each other. But God has preserved him. And God had provided him relief in verse number two. And again, this is one of those things about which there's some academic discussion. Was David physically ill? Because that would be the way that we think of the word healing. That David had some disease. But, but there's really no record of David having a physical illness. And the word does not have to mean that. For instance, it is the word used in Isaiah 53, 5, by his stripes we are healed. We are healed from our spiritual malady, not our physical malady by the stripes of Christ. I mean, ultimately we'll be healed physically, but the framework of Isaiah 53.5 is our salvation from our sins. It could simply be the way that David is thinking about the fact that he lived on the edge, folks. And again, as you read through the story of David and his experiences with Saul, we are not just given a physical picture of close calls. We are given an emotional picture of, of a man who is living on the edge, a man whose daily existence is the risk of being killed, the jeopardy of dying. And he reaches a place, folks. And In fact, I heard a man say this was many years ago at, at David in the wilderness of sin. He said, I think David was actually contemplating suicide. He was so despondent. He reached a place. He said, one of these days, 
right? I can't keep living these close calls. One of these days, Saul is going to kill me. But God had instead healed him. And in verse number three, we have a similar sentiment. God had preserved him. God had kept him alive. And this is what David is referring here to the pit. Not the pit of sin, but the grave. David had often thought of himself as a dead man. That's because we know, folks, that Saul had made it more than clear. He, his intention was to kill David. He hired people to kill David. He sought out people to kill David. He was angry at his son Jonathan for not killing David. And David kept thinking, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. But now here he is. The house is built. David perceives that God has established his kingdom. For the first time in ages, David can breathe a sigh of relief. God, here is my testimony. Verses 4 and 5 then turn our attention not to David and his testimony, but to the Lord and his pattern. How does the Lord deal with his people? Verse number 4, sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his. Right? This is a song designed for public worship, for public Consumption, all of God's people are to sing it and we are to sing unto the Lord and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. The idea there, right, holiness is not just simply his purity, it is. But holiness is his apartness. There is, there is a very real sense, folks, and, and it is not an egregious offense to us that there is distance between us and the Lord. There's a very real distance. He is apart. He is, he is apart from impurity and unrighteousness in a way that at this point in time, we just simply cannot be. There is an apartness to him. Not an aloofness, but an apartness to him. And because of that, Right? Because of the holiness of the Lord, because of his distance from sin, and yet because of his nature of love and mercy, this is his characteristic, verse number five, when it comes to his people, for his anger endureth but a moment. In his favor is life. <clears throat> Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. So this is the Lord's pattern with us, folks. This is the Lord's pattern with his people. And, and you can see, right, this, I think, and I, I, I'm not suggesting any sinfulness on David's part, but I, I wonder if he's not thinking about that just in his own experiences to this point in his life. All of this is, of course, written before the great sin with Bathsheba, before the collapse of the house of David, before the rebellion under Absalom. But he notes a pattern with the Lord. The, the, his anger, and it's, it's really a beautiful picture in the Hebrew language, the flaring of his nostrils is momentary. It's just temporary. But his favor is lifelong. But his favor is lifelong. This is God's 
pattern. And, and I think, by the way, that, that New Testament writers pick up that essence. Let me just read to you a couple of verses. Romans 8.18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be, be revealed in us. That there is a temporariness to the suffering and the sorrow and the sadness. 1 Peter 1.4, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. So this is, this is the pattern of life because it is the pattern of the Lord that we suffer momentarily, that we endure momentarily, but we will enjoy his favor eternally. So there's David's testimony and God's pattern. And then in verse number six, the song takes yet another twist. And here is, I think, David's temptation, verses six through nine. And in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by thy favor thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. Thou didst hide thy face, and I was troubled. I cried to thee, O Lord, and unto the Lord I made supplication. What is going on in verses 6 and 7? And there is a bit of a mystery to it. What is David talking about? And what happened? But I think, folks, that there is a, a moment of reality that is being expressed for us here from the life of David. I mean, the, the, what David said is very clear. In my prosperity, in my ease and in my tranquility, I said, I am secure and I will never be moved. But here is the reality. The reality is verse number 7. Lord, by thy favor thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. And remember, folks, he's writing a poem. right? He's employing some symbolic figurative language. I looked around and I thought to myself, this is always going to be this way. And then I realized that it is only that way because of the Lord, not because of me. So is David having a bit of an epiphany? Is this a little bit of a confession? Or is it just a little bit of an insight to the way we are inclined to think and the way that we should not think? And so verses 8 through 10 are his prayer. What should we do when we let our thinking get ahead of reality? What should we do if we think that, well, I've, I've got a grip now. I'm in my, in my prosperity, in my ease. I am never going to be moved. 
Verse number eight, I cried to thee, O Lord, and unto the Lord I made my supplication. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Shall the dust praise thee? Shall it declare thy truth? Verse number eight, the the grammar of verse number eight would imply that, not in the English, but in the Hebrew, that David kept on making this cry to the Lord. That there was a repetition to this prayer. Not a vain repetition, but a repetition to this prayer. If there's a possibility, folks, in verses 6 and 7, that David was on the verge of thinking too highly of himself or getting too big for his britches, this was the way he dealt with it. He brought it before the Lord. And part of his prayer was this in verse number 9. What good am I to you dead? Then there again, there's that idea of the pit. Not, not the pit of sin, not even the pit of despair. This is a very common Old Testament way of thinking. It isn't that the Jews didn't believe in an afterlife. But they, but they had a much more final version of death than we do as New Testament saints. Right? We see it in Solomon's poetry. We see it in Job's poetry. We see it in David's poetry. That when I die, I'm dead. And that what good am I to you is dead. What use am I to you if I die? So Lord, I cry to you. I cry to you. I cry to you. And so he begs God in verse number 10. Hear, O Lord, and have mercy upon me, O Lord. Be thou my helper. So David's testimony, God's pattern, David's temptation, and then finally the psalm closes with yet another testimony. Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to thee and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks unto thee forever. So the focus of verse number 11 is what God had done for David. This is the nature of his testimony. God, this is what you have done for me. You have turned my mourning into dancing. And again, folks, as we read the history of David, from the time that he has chosen to be the king, moved into the house of Saul, very quickly it sours. And it is, we do not know, I do not know, would not presume to argue, just wonder, trying to think through. It may be that in that moment as a young man, having just been announced that he's going to be the king and, and, and someday and moved into the king's house, that he thinks, rock solid here. And then, of course, the bottom falls out of that tub very quickly. Here is his testimony. God, here is what you have done for me. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You've taken off my sackcloth, my mourning clothes, and girded me with gladness. And verse number 12 is David's testimony as to why God does it. Why does God do those things for us? Why does God deliver us? Why does he answer some of our prayers, not all of them, but some of our prayers positively? Why does he do nice things for us to the end that my glory 
may sing praise to thee and not be silent. You know, one of God's criticisms of unbelieving humanity is that they are not thankful. Is that they are not thankful to him. They are dismissive of him. They ignore him. They are not thankful to him. And David instructs us that one of the reasons God acts in our behalf, whether it be our salvation or some deliverance in a situation or some answer to a prayer or some blessing we receive, is so that what he has done for us, that glory, that unique element, becomes an occasion to praise him and we will not be silent about it. O Lord my God, I will give thanks unto thee forever. God had delivered him from his external enemies. In verse number one, quite possibly. In verse number six, he had delivered him from his iniquity of pride. I said, I will never be moved. And so David will praise him forever. That is certainly his intention. We're going to stop there this evening. If you want to